Good morning. Well, um, as Jack said, my name is Jason. I, I recognize many of you. Um, if you don't know me, uh, my wife Karen and I, she's back in the back there, and our family have been coming to Windsor Church um, almost seven years now. And uh, for that, for us, that's, that's a long time to be in one place. Um, I've um, been in the ministry for over 20 years and moved from church to church to church um, for a variety of reasons, and most of them not because of uh, healthy um, choices, but we can get into that as we move forward. Um, so I'm from the Northwest, from Seattle, so uh, later today I'll be watching the Seahawks game. So go Seahawks. Oh, look at that. I got some friends. I like it. I'll keep coming back. So uh, as Jack said, we have a ministry here in the front range called Hope for Purity, but we partner with another ministry international organization called Pure Desire Ministries International. And some of you may be familiar with them and what they do, but I'm not here to talk about that today. Um, what I'm here to talk to you a little bit about is specifically from Romans 12, verse 2. So if you brought your Bibles, we're going to be kind of living in that passage. Turn to Romans, and we're going to look at chapter 12, verse 2. So we're going to jump right in. It says this. It says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Well, um, I'm going to be drawing a diagram up here of the brain and the neurochemistry of the brain and how that works. So if we have any counselors in the room or neuroscientists, don't tell me um, how bad I butchered this. Um, just kind of bear with me. So we're, we're talking about a little bit about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, as it relates to scripture. So don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the last, uh, boy, Nine years I've been on this journey, this healing journey, and it's taken me back into um, schooling and uh, specifically in counseling in the neurochemistry of the brain as it relates to addiction. So what do we know about addiction? Well, addiction impacts probably everybody in this room on one level or another, um, whether you're struggling with something yourself or you know somebody that has impacted you in such a way um, that their behaviors have uh, negatively um, produced consequences in your life as well. And uh, with addiction, if we, if, we, if we are all honest with ourselves, we all have something that we go to, a coping behavior. Um, when things get stressful, when things get tough, um, whether it's food, um, whether it's uh, drinking, whether it's uh, shutting down and just watching, binge-watching Netflix, um, there's a lot of things we do to kind of shut off our brains to, to disassociate from reality. And, and Jesus tells us in John 8, 34, he says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, I'm not here to beat you up over your sin. I'm just here to talk to you today about, about this approach and how our brain is working. And we come and we find ourselves falling into bondage to, to certain things in our, our life due to past experiences and how those experiences replay themselves over and over and over again in our, in our lives. Riker last week, um, I, I, watched, I wasn't here, but I watched his message online, and he, and he shared his testimony. What a great testimony of, of how God has continued to work in his life in, in his own struggles. Um, he, he focused in on this, this, this passage in Romans earlier, Romans 6, 6. It says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Well, 
We say, Jesus says we're slaves to sin, but Paul is telling us that we no longer have to be slaves to sin. And now there's a process that we can enter into that that doesn't have to control us anymore. And how do we do that? Well, first we have to understand the battle. What is the battle? Well, there's two components to the battle. And, and the first component is, is where the battle is. And to do that, we have to look at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So that tells us where the battle is. It's not in the flesh. So, so we can... Um, we can presume that, that the flesh is somewhere outside, or the battle is somewhere outside the flesh. And more specifically, as we read in other scriptures, it tells us that the battle lies in our mind between the spirit and the spiritual realm and, and our thoughts and our soul and, and our belief system. Now we want to know what is the battle against? Well, we read the second half of that verse. It says, we destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised against what? the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we know where the battle is. The battle's in our mind, and we know what it's against. It's against the knowledge of God. Well, we just read Romans 12, 2. It said what? It said, don't conform to the patterns of this world. So what does the world do? How does the world live? How does the world think? How does the world behave? Well, what do we do? We take God out of everything. You think of taking God out of the schools. What's happened? Well, you have school shootings. You take God out of the courts. What happens? Everybody's arguing. Everybody's fighting. You take God out of government. We create laws to legalize our immorality. We take God even out of the churches, and then you find yourself in a church, and they probably have a gay pastor. So it's about removing the knowledge of God out of the world so that we might be conformed to the world and fall into this, this place of self-destruction. So why do we need to renew our minds? Well, Paul was talking earlier on to the Romans in, in chapter 7, verse 15. He says, hey, I, I get it. I'm a Roman citizen, and, and, and I'm just like you, and I find myself not doing the things that I should be doing, but, but I, can, I, I find myself doing the things that I hate over here. I, find my, I, I, I know I should be doing good things over here, and I should be walking this way, but, but I find myself in this this bondage of doing the things that I continue to hate. Well, let's break that down. We have a formula, and the formula says this, that our beliefs create feelings or emotions, and those feelings and emotions drive our behavior. So beliefs create emotions that drive behaviors. Remember that. And at the end of behaviors, what happens a lot of times is there's consequences to those actions. And we'll unpack that for you this morning. So let's look. I got this picture up here. And this picture is of a little kid driving a car. And that little kid is this man's inner child. So I don't know uh, if any of your husbands relate to me, but sometimes my wife tells me that I'm acting like a child. Well, that's my inner child coming out and driving the car and those behaviors that go along with that. So, so if you remember anything, remember this, that feelings are like little kids. You can't let them drive the car, and you can't shove them in the trunk. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't have a picture of a kid shoved in a trunk because I'd probably have law enforcement showing up at my door wondering why I have pictures of kids in trunks. Anyways, another, 
Another story. So I've got another picture here. This picture is of our brand new car that we bought for my wife. And her name was Matilda. And Matilda got totaled. So keep that picture up there for a moment. And now I'm going to draw a picture of our brains. And I'm going to start with the prefrontal cortex. I know this is kind of hard to see. But this is more for me to keep me on track. Otherwise, I'll stay here and ramble all day. So this keeps me moving. So our prefrontal cortex is what? Well, this is our brakes. This is our executive functioning. So let's just call it our brakes today. And we're going to add some other things in there later. So I was speaking in uh, Seattle last month. And when we went away, um, our, our daughter's car wouldn't, wouldn't start. So the, the starter died in it. And I said, just drive your mom's car. It'll be, it'll be fine. And so we were gone a day and a half. And then we get a phone call. Um, and the car had been totaled. So this is why we don't let kids rent cars until they're 25, because their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed yet. Okay. Now, I, 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 I use this as an example, and you know what? She has brakes. She's a very, very good driver, and she's okay, by the way. But the car is totaled. Let's go to the next picture. The next picture, there's a personalized license plate on there. It says resilient, R-Z-L-I-E-N-T. Well, we have that personalized plate for my wife because of our own personal journey that she has been so resilient in our recovery and our healing process, and that was for her. And unfortunately, the car is not so much resilient anymore. But it is on a new vehicle, so if you see a license plate out in the drive uh, parking lot that says resilient, that is the replacement. Okay, so prefrontal cortex and the brakes. What do we want to say about that? Our beliefs create feelings which drive behaviors. So thinking about the brakes, let me just say one thing real quick. Uh, parents, parents of teenagers, parents of kids, teenagers and kids in the, in the audience, um, I, have, I have a lot of parents come to me and they say, Jason, hey, what is a good age uh, for us to give our kids a smartphone? And all the parents with one voice say, Never. Yes. Yes. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's not that we don't want to ever give it to them, but what we're doing is we're giving them um, open access to the world. So if you're giving them a device that's not um, have filters on it, that have locks and blocks or being monitored, um, you're just giving them access to the world. Romans 12, 2 says what? Don't conform to the patterns of this world. If we're not engaged with that, we're already setting them up to fail. We have uh, experienced and uh, discovered that, that kids are getting cell phones uh, first grade, first day of school. And, and they are... The stage is broke. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I get distracted sometimes, something shiny. Um, that's a little ADHD, but that's okay. So, um, so these kids, they, they, they get exposed to pornography the first day of school on the bus. They're sharing pictures, and then that creates shame in their life, and it just sets them up for this whole pattern of destruction. So parents, what are we to do? Tells us, Roman 22, or not Romans, but Proverbs 22.6 says this, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. Well, what is that telling us? Well, as parents, we were to model we're to instruct and we are to discipline. If we're not following through in 
each of those categories, um, we're not doing our jobs as parents, not to beat you up, but to give you motivation to re-engage with your kids, and it's never too late. Um, A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, I'm a theologian from uh, the late 1800s. He says this to parents. He says, the parent is not only to instruct his children in the ways of holiness, but is himself to walk before them in those ways and show him by practice and demeanor what is pleasant and profitable thing it is to be regulated by the divine law. Okay, so enough of that rabbit trail. So let's jump back to our brain, prefrontal cortex. We're going to expand on that now. Over here, we have got the left hemisphere. Left hemisphere is our logic. We've got our logic. And we think in terms of facts. So just the facts, ma'am. Um, bullet points. Okay, over on this side, we've got our right hemisphere. I never said I was an artist. Okay, this is where we've got our feelings. This is where we are, our relational brain is. Um, we think in terms of pictures. Good. Um, down here, doesn't really matter, but the occipital lobe, and there's a lot of other things underneath there. Um, we've got our ears over here on the side of our head, and we've got our eyes coming out the front. And it looks more like a ladybug. Okay, good. We can work with this. We can work with this. This is good. All right, now there's another component, and this is where it gets tricky because... What do we say? We say, beliefs create feelings which drive behaviors. <sighs> but I know what I, I know. I know the Bible says Jesus loves me, this I know for the, for it tells me so, right? So that is a, let me use a different color pen here. That is a truth, right? That is a truth. That truth lives up here. Well, in the middle of our brain, we have what is called the limbic system. So if you're taking notes, it's L-I-M-B-I-C, limbic system. So we've got the amygdala, our fear receptors, uh, the nucleus incumbens, that's our reward center, and our couple other things going on. And that makes up um, the limbic system. So this is where our fight, flight, and freeze lives, and um, our short-term memory. Um, this is my experiential memory. So I'm going to paint a picture for you. Let me move this out of the way so you guys are on this side can see. Let's create an example. So let's say I'm, go, I'm hiking in the mountains. I'm going up a trail. And as I walk down the trail, I come across a snake. What do I do? Well, I kind of take a gasp there and I jump to the side. I get out of the way because I don't want the snake to bite me. Well, that is a fear response. Um, I need a better place for these pins so I can get them. Okay, so I see a snake, creates a, a reaction, an experiential that snakes, you know, can be dangerous. Maybe not so dangerous, but I don't want to step on it. And it produces a feeling in me, and that feeling is fear. And I'm running out of ink in my red pen. Okay. So that's fear. The snake caused a, a reaction of fear. Now, what do we want to do with that? Well, because I have great um, 
neural connections between my left and right hemisphere, my brain talks to each other, and it helps me reason through my prefrontal cortex. So my left brain engages, and it says, whoa, 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 Mr. Right Brain, slow down. I saw something you didn't see. Let's look back again. And the right brain, because it's relational, says, yeah, let's sit down and talk about that. I want to engage in this conversation. And so we have this little meeting, and then we turn around and we look back, and what do we see? We see a stick. So there is now a stick up here, okay? So I've got the stick. Okay, not a big deal. Then I pick up the stick and I go about my day. So that whole interaction happens about that fast in our brains, in a healthy brain. Now, let me paint another picture for you. Jack and I, this isn't a true story. This is just an example. So Jack and I, we go hiking up to one of the 14ers and we're going up the mountains and um, snakes can't go up all the way, but we, we go through a snake field. So we're, we're hiking, and, and Jack steps on a rattlesnake. The snake bites him, and poison goes through his veins, into his blood, starts to shut down his organs, and I'm trying to drag him back to the car that's two miles back. And we finally get him to the emergency room probably about 10 hours later. Well, I can't drag him that fast. So we, we finally get him back there. His organs start to shut down. He ends up in ICU for about 10 days as they try to... Um, put him in this process of recovery. He survives, thank goodness, and he's here with us today. And that is a very happy ending. But what has happened in his brain is he had an experience with the snake, and that experience has now become what we call a trauma. And that trauma severs my ability to reason. My left and my right brain stop working together. Okay. Now, the snake in his limbic memory has gotten much, much bigger. Everybody tracking? Okay. One more picture, then we'll move on. So, after some time, Jack starts to talk to me again because, you know, he had this bad experience and he wanted to not be around me because I reminded him of the snake. But I say, hey, let's go for a hike. He's like, uh-uh not going to happen. So he's never going to go hiking again because he doesn't want to step on a snake. But finally he secedes and he says, okay, Jason, I'll go for a walk with you around Windsor Lake. So we go walking around Windsor Lake and we come across a snake. What does Jack do now? Run, Forrest, run. He turns and he books it back to his car as fast as he can. He doesn't look back. He jumps in the car. He rolls up the window and he locks the doors. He's about ready to start the car, but I'm such a nice guy, and I want to show him that it wasn't a snake, it was a stick. So I'm chasing him with a stick, <laughs> saying, Jack, look, look, Jack, it's just a stick. He says, no, 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 no. So I continue to persist as I tap on the window of the car with a stick, and what I'm doing in him, his fear, has now turned to anger. Okay? So I created an anger response in him. And now, because of that experience, I have planted a lie in his brain, and that lie lives right here in his experiential memory. And the, the lie says this. Let me use a pen that you can see. It says that all sticks are snakes. Does that make sense? Now, all you smart people here that are reasoning says, no, that is not true. Well, it's true in the sense of the experience that creates 
the emotion that drives the behavior. So anytime he comes across anything that remotely resembles a snake, he's gone. Okay. Well, something else happens in here because he shut down his logic. Left hemisphere is actually our emotional regulator for our right brain. And so he shut down these things. But me, I'm great with my logic and reasoning. So um, my, my wife would probably say otherwise. But um, so, so what I have done is I, I keep trying to show him the stick. But what have I not done in that relationship? Value the relationship because I cared more about him seeing the snake than I cared about his fear. Why do I do that? Well, if you know anything about my story... Um, I grew up um, bouncing around in foster care the first 10 years of my life. My mom abandoned me and my, th my two brothers. I was about 18 months old. And I never knew my father. We all had different dads. But through that experience, I developed a trauma in my life that says, um, don't trust people. So I, uh, I wasn't able to attach to anything in my feelings. I definitely didn't have any relational bonding because people were dangerous. And so I cared more about Jaxie and the stick than I cared about him. So I, I go over here in my trauma and I produce out of this side. His anger creates a response in me that causes me to justify and defend. Okay. Now this happens and plays out every single day in relationship and we don't even realize that it's happening. And there's this disconnect. Well, what does the Bible say about relationships? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors as yourself. God cares about relationship and, and the enemy's biggest tool is to destroy relationship and he does that through creating a, an experiential lie that becomes our new belief system that we're in a, when we're in a triggered moment um, creates a feeling in us which drives to a behavior. Now, what are those behaviors? Those behaviors are a lot of things. Now, the feelings are just the, the fear and the anger and the justification and defending, but the, but the behaviors are what do I need to resolve those feelings? And those become our coping behaviors, the things that we go to when life becomes stressful and unmanageable. Good. So when we look at this, we have another um, little saying. It says that knowledge, knowledge doesn't equal understanding. Just because I know Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so, doesn't mean that I have understanding of that because I have these limbic wounds down here um, that create these feelings and, and behaviors. Okay, everybody tracking still. How do we gain understanding? How do we get to that place to, to move um, from taking the knowledge into this place of, of understanding? Well, we have to. We have to heal this. And we'll talk about how that happens here in a minute. So we look to Romans 5. Verse three and four, it says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, 
knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So if we break that verse down in light of um, our belief systems, creating emotions that drive behaviors, let's put, uh, let's put our belief system over here. So what we believe and our emotions here and our behaviors over here, um, behaviors have consequences to them. So when we look at this verse, that's our tribulation. Our tribulation is walking through the consequences of our behavior, not in so much sometimes what we do, maybe something that other people have done to us. And we're walking through the tribulation of that. Then we have to back out of that. And it says perseverance. So if we, if we deal with the behaviors and the consequences and the tribulation, what we have to do is we have to set up a, a boundary we have to set up guardrails that say, don't conform to the patterns of this world. Stop doing those things. So we're going to get accountability. We're going to step out of isolation because if we live there too long, we're going to isolate because the shame makes us believe that's what we deserve. And so we stay there too long and we have to back out of that. So with accountability and support, we move to this place. When we look in recovery, this is a three to five year process and that process to get out of there is about a year. Now we back out of that and we get up to this place with dealing with our feelings and our emotions, which is very, very, very uncomfortable for a lot of us that are struggling in bondage and addictions because we don't have any perspective. We don't have any ability to reason because this side has not been developed. And so how do we do with that? Well, we persevere in that. What does persevere mean? Well, I grab my chair and I just kind of sit down in it. I just kind of sit and wallow in my feelings, but I can't let those feelings take me back to those old behaviors. Now, there's a lot of things we do in this process of healing and dealing with the emotional awareness, and there's, there are specific tasks that, that we walk through, and we won't get into that today. But just remember, you know, sit in the feeling. Don't let the feeling drive a behavior. I want to know why um, I do the things that I don't want to do. And then we move to the next part, which is so fun. And that's moving into um, the belief system. What's going on in my limbic system? Why are all snakes, or why are all sticks snakes? Well, that's where my character is refined and renewed. And after that, it produces what? Produces hope. Good. And I've lost my place, my notes, and I knew this would happen. Good, okay, so beliefs, emotions, behaviors, and then tribulation, perseverance, character. So we're back and back out of that. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the last part of Romans 12, 2. And this is about the hope. How do we find hope? How do we discover hope in this whole process of dysfunction and, and craziness? Well, before I get there, I had somebody um, between services come up and ask me a question. They said, Jason, um, what do I do when this is comfortable? What happens when this is comfortable over here? Hmm, good question. Well, when that becomes comfortable, um, I have to jump and speak truth into that uncomfortability. And the truth is this, that the Bible says for those of you who know the right thing to do and don't do it, that's a sin. 
I know the right thing to do. I know that I need to be over here, but man, it's comfortable over here. Well, that still puts us back into this process of, of beliefs creating emotions that drive behaviors, and that emotion is what? I believe that if I make a change in my life, um, it's not going to be fun. It's going to be painful. Well, that, that belief creates an emotion of anxiety and stress, and the behavior is this, go back and do what I've always done. Well, that's insanity, right? Okay, so just want to touch note on that because I know some of you might be thinking that, man, I get comfortable over here. What's the whole point of changing? Why do I need to do this? My life is just fine. Well, is it? Well, let's look at our, our belief system. So when we look at the end part, the hope, let's jump back to the hope. Um, Romans 12, 2, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing, you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay? So those aren't three different things, good, acceptable, and perfect. They're actually a representation of, of one thing. So let's touch briefly on those three things, and then we'll let you out of here. So when Paul says good things, um, that the good acts are the will of God, what we don't want to do is, is go after some mystical, spiritual religion um, that, that makes us feel good. We have to ask ourselves, is what I'm doing good? It might be uncomfortable. It might not feel safe, but is it good? I have to do those things because that is not what's good to me, not what's good to what the world tells me, but what is good to God. Then we move into the next step. What is acceptable? Acceptable to who? Not to me, same thing. Not to the world, not to how I feel, but what is acceptable to God? And then lastly, what is perfect? So, he uses the word perfect, and he does this, so that we can discern to do what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable in this idea of perfection. Now, I know that might cause a lot of stress in us today, and, and that, 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 that tension is actually good, but, but here's, the, here's the caveat. We, don't, we can't be perfect. We can only be perfect because, because of what Christ has done for us on the, on the cross. But in perfection... Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so we have to be transformed so that we can do what is perfect. We're not going to be perfect, but we're striving for perfection. Now, this isn't about performance because performance is about value and identity. I perform to get something of identity and value. But if I know who I am, and who God created me to be, then I strive for that because I want to look more like Christ. Okay? Good. So, we're going to get ready to close. I'm going to have the band come up. And as, we, as they're coming up, we're going to look at this a little bit. So, perfection. You see, Paul puts, puts Romans 12 under, under the banner of something. We have to go back and read chapters 1 through 11. And 1 through 11, and it, and it sums it up in, in verse 1 of chapter 12. And he says, everything is under the banner of God's mercies. Without God's mercies, we, we're doomed. We're, we're, in, we're in deep. 
and, and, and there, is, there is no hope for us. So, so God has given us this plan and this formula um, to come back to this place of recognition that our character and our identity needs to be reflected that of Christ so that we might have hope. So, in those chapters, as we look at God's mercies in Christ, you see, this is what saves us in spite of our imperfections. Okay? God's mercy saves us in spite of our imperfections. In Romans 6 and 7, chapter 6 and 7, um, Paul's just telling us that our imperfections are going to continue all the days of our lives. So that's just a validation that, that, you know, we're not perfect, but we are striving for something. And that is fulfilled in the work of Christ on the cross. So as we, as we close, let's stand together. I'm going to say a few more things, then we're going to pray. <coughs> so, so the command of verse 2, that we're to do what is good, acceptable, and perfect, all that does is it throws us back on the mercies of Christ and how we're called to respond. See, the mercy of God sends us back again to pursue perfect obedience. See, no one can stand at the cross, the cross at the back of the room back there. We can't stand there just receiving his mercy and be casual about the will of God. Because we can just sit back there. We can sit and sing Kumbaya, but nothing changes. Then we're just waiting for Christ's return, but we haven't fulfilled our calling. And when we're not walking and fulfilling our calling, we're going to fall into this place of despair and we're going to be looking for the mountaintop experiences of God and not walking in the will of God. So the cross impels us with great gratitude, with hope and joy to die to the right to ourselves, die to the, what the world wants us and, and how they want us to live, what they want us to believe. We need to die to those things, set up accountability and structure and community and faith and small groups and church and bring people around us that we don't fall back into isolation and get into this place of renewing our mind so that we might reflect the character of Christ in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we know this is just a lot of information, but just pray that, that one thing might have impacted each individual here, that they might search their heart, search their mind, and say, Jesus, transform me. Make me more like you. Help me die to the right to myself. Help me crucify the flesh that I might walk in the spirit. We seek your face in all things. We thank you for this promise that, that we can come to the cross. We come to the cross for your mercies. And as we heal, as we learn to trust, we become empowered to take a step of faith, to risk, to walk in this place of obedience that we might be refined and grow stronger each and every day that, that the work you've done in our, through our lives has become a testimony to change the world. And so we don't just sit at the foot of the cross, but we take that and we walk in your will, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Romans 5.5 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. You see, at the end of this whole process, there is hope after character refinement. But guess what that does? That hope gives us the strength to jump back in and say, God, what is next in my life? What is next in my heart that you want to weed out of me that does not reflect you? See, that, that circular process is just a process of sanctification, that I don't stay in this hope and stop changing, because that's where I get comfortable. I stay honest with myself and with others, and I jump back and I be vulnerable to the things that I need to continue to change. And that's where perfection lives. So at this time, we thank you, Jesus, and we respond to your word. We respond by, by going to the cross, writing down our concerns, writing down our bondages, that we might be freed. We seek prayer, but we also respond by, by celebrating the work he did for us on the cross as we receive communion. And we also respond in our act of worship through giving. And if you brought your gift today, you can leave that in the box on your way out or you can give online. Everybody said amen.